Hey, Startup Nation, I am so glad you came back to join us for another edition of The Startup Life. You clearly are ready to get the tools you need to get ahead of the competition. Go ahead and give us a five-star rating while you're here. Now, if you're looking for an ad-free experience, go ahead and sign up for our Patreon page, where you will get exclusive content and access to our digital products that we're beginning to launch. The link is there in the show notes. And if you want to ask questions directly to some of our guests, follow the Startup Life Podcast Club on Clubhouse as some of our conversations will start to happen. Happen there. But back to the task at hand. Are you ready to level up? Of course you are. Get ready as the Startup Life Podcast begins now. It's time to be about that life. The Startup Life. Here's your host, Dominic Lawson. All right, Startup Nation. So I hope you're ready to receive some value today. My name is Dominic Lawson and this is the Startup Life, the show for entrepreneurs and career-minded professionals. You know, Startup Nation, how can we take back control of technology so it will shape the society we want for ourselves instead of becoming the monster we can no longer tame? We always know, uh, we have always heard that technology is supposed to improve life, but there may be uh, a bit of an issue, which is why we have a fantastic guest here on the show today. He co-founded and leads the Center of for the Future of Work at Cognizant, and he's also the co-author of of Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and future. He is Ben Pring. Ben, how are you, good sir? I'm good, Donald. Great to be with you. Thanks Thank for you. having me on the show. No worries. Thank you so much for coming on the Startup Life. And you know, you wrote this fantastic book. Thank you so much for uh, writing. And before we kind of dive in into the book, I, I just want to ask you this. We've been asking everybody that's been coming on the show uh, lately as we start to kind of hopefully come out of the other side of this pandemic. Over the past 13 uh, months, Ben, what are some maybe professional or personal lessons that you've learned? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, well, it's been a pretty kind of surreal experience, I think, uh, for me and for everybody, hasn't it, Dominic? Um, Absolutely. I mean, it's, and I think we're still processing it, really. Um, you know, the good and the bad and the ugly of it all. Right. Um, you know, to tell you the truth, I've been working remotely. I've kind of been a future of work guy for, gosh, more years than I care to remember. Over mm -hmm. 25 years, I've been working remotely. So in a, in a way, it kind of felt like the world was catching up with me a little bit. Gotcha, know, that, right. Um, that people were kind of experiencing what I'd experienced for a long time. And and I, I, I prefer this kind of remote work style, working, um, you know, outside of the city, not having that commute, not having to kind of put pants on every day. Right. <laughs> I, I and I think there's a lot to be said for it. Now, at the same time, I travel, you know, in my job a lot, you know, prior to the pandemic. Of course. And, um, you know, to be at events, to be with colleagues, to be with clients. And I think that mix of, you know, uh, when you need to be with people, be with people, when you need to be on your own, be, be on your own, that's worked for me. Obviously, that's a kind of personal thing a lot of people probably wouldn't work for. But I do think that. Coming out of the pandemic, what we've all learned collectively is that the notion that you need to be in an office, in a cubicle at you know, 8 o'clock on a Monday morning and still be there at 6 o'clock on a Friday afternoon to get a job done right. is probably not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, I think the notion of flexibility, when you go to, you go to the supermarket, there are 50 types of cereal. 
uh, you know, we're used to, to choice in our, mm. every other aspect of our life. And right. I think that's going to be that's going to be the big takeaway, I think, coming out of this. The big learning is that offering people choice. Do you want to be in the office? Do you want to work at home? As long as you're you know, kind of doing the job, getting the work done, however you want to get it done. I think that's the flexibility, which will be the silver lining in this cloud. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing that. I want to ask a quick follow up question to that, because, you know, as we start to maybe uh, come out the other side of this pandemic and a lot of people have been working remote have been working remotely uh, during this time. And a lot of people have been more productive and uh, a lot of managers are saying, you know what, let's just let's just stick to this. Let's like have some type of hybrid model (laughs) and and stuff like that. But you're going to let's be honest, you're going to have some of those middle managers and supervisors who are going to give some pushback. I guess I'm curious from this standpoint, if I'm uh, a, a traditional worker who, who was going in at first and have found remote uh, uh, remote work to be more productive and, and stuff like that, more better for work life balance, whatever that means and stuff like that. What should I go to that supervisor or boss to try to uh, convince them that I should continue to work remotely? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I, I, again, I think the big learning is what I call heads down work. Okay. You know, where you're looking at the computer, you're coding, you're writing, you're doing your email, you're working a spreadsheet. That heads down work, that's sort of held up pretty well. That, in fact, the productivity of that is probably held up. You know, is, is probably improved. Right. But the head, the heads up work. Mm. You know, where we need to look in the whites of each other's eyes, and we need to kind of. Uh, collaborate and be creative and we need all that kind of energy of being with other people that work is obviously um not done so well on zoom or webex or teams or whatever so if you if you buy that logic it seems to me logical to to say well look when you're doing that heads down work you know do that at home uh, or do that in Starbucks or do that in, you know, where on the beach, wherever you, you can do that work the best, right. do it there. But when you need to be with the team, with, with your colleagues, with your clients, and you need that energy of being together, well, yeah, come into the office, come into the, the, the collaboration space, come into the WeWork office or whatever it is. And I think, again, if you for the reality for most people is that um, – uh, you know, they're in that cubicle doing work a lot of the time that probably isn't done best in that cubicle. Mm. Um, and so I, that would be the logic I would take to a boss. You know, if I gotcha. was an employee, look, you know, you've seen that my work uh, productivity, the quality of my work's held up. Of course. Um, you know, I, let me let me continue to do this. Let me, you know, be at home on a Monday or Tuesday and I'll come in, I'll schedule my meetings for a Wednesday and a Thursday morning. And, um, you know, I think that's the, in the context of this kind of notion of hybrid, I think that's the way it's going to shake out that the, and, and again, I think for, um, you know, employers who are trying to attract high quality employees, mm. offering that kind of flexibility is going to be important. And I think if you're a, you know, if you've got um, desirable skills as an employee, right. you know, that's that's the the, tr- the leverage you've got to say, look, I'll, I'll come in when you need me to come in. But when you don't need, need me to be there and you can see I'm working away pretty hard and doing a great job for you, let me do it where I want to do it. 
For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that, because I, I just imagine that there's still just going to be a few managers and stuff like there's going to be hard pressed like, no, nah, I need to see you uh, next to me and, and, and stuff like that. So that's yeah, definitely... that, 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 that's very real. That notion of presenteeism as, as kind of uh, right. people call it, the, you know, the, the, the idea that if you're in the seat, you're working. But again, I think what, you know, a lot of managers, a lot of people understand nowadays. And again, this is sort of been happening for a long time but it's been kind of um it, you know exposed if you like a little bit more is that just because somebody's in a seat in a cubicle doesn't necessarily right. mean they're working they've got their <laughs> they've got their phone open they're tweeting away or they're on tiktok or they you know so again this kind of mashup of um the hybrid life i mean we've talked for a long time at the center for the future work about this transition from what we call fried egg life mm. to scrambled egg life and mm. you know fried fried egg life in the old world kind of model was that your you know your job was one thing and your life was another thing you know the the, the whites and the yolk ah, they're kind of two separate things right but now in scrambled egg life everything's mashed up so you know you'll you'll be doing email in bed at you know six o'clock in the morning and then you'll go for a run you know or take the dog for a walk at 10 30 in the in you know when, so in the true. work in the work day and then you'll go and pick up the kids at four o'clock and then you'll go to the gym and then you'll be doing more email or working on your report at nine o'clock at night that kind of scrambled egg life that's that mashup we, you know, a lot of people have been living that kind of life for a, for a while but i think that's the life that everybody's sort of living right right now certainly people kind of the office style worker and i think for a lot of people again that's preferable i mean that's how i've worked for a long time uh, a lot of people kind of struggle to figure out how to optimize that. And they one of the things you hear a lot of people talking about at the moment is I'm just sort of burnt out and spending too much time online and right. spending too much time working. I, I just think that that's, um, you know, a case of people having to figure out how to do this. I mean, uh, and I think ultimately that's up to an individual. You know, you figure out how to manage your day and your other responsibilities in your life, in this scrambled egg life. And I think in time, more and more people will optimize that. And of course, it has all sorts of implications for employers, you know, in terms of office space, how much office space they need. And right. I think this is going to be a kind of pretty profound um, change in, for, for a lot of businesses, um, which is going to take a little while to kind of work through the system in the next few years. For sure. For sure. Thank you for sharing all of that insight. Once again, Startup Nation, we're talking to Ben Pring, the, co the author, co-author of Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives and future. And Startup Nation, if you want to get a copy of that book, we have a link in the show notes to, right now. There's a link there in the show notes for easy access if you listen to the replay on a podcast to purchase that book uh, now. So let's kind of dive into the book. You, you bring up a lot of um, uh, uh, very interesting concepts uh, in the book and stuff like that. For one, you talk about establishing a federal technology association uh, and a U.S. data uh, authority to tackle today's social media uncivil. And that's such a, a right <laughs> word, say uncivil war. Uh, that's kind of uh, dividing us a little bit. Kind of talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're, we're talking, you know, the last few minutes about, um, the connective power of technology and how right. it's, you know, allowed um, us to keep working and um, it's allowed, you know, the, the world and life to go on. And that's great. And, um, you know, so tech is absolutely central to our lives now. And it's of absolutely course. 
central to everything that's good in our lives. But, you know, only the, the most sort of Pollyannish or utopian or kind of one-eyed person would be blind to the fact that there's a lot of stuff going on in technology which isn't so great. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, particularly in the era of social media, I mean, we can all see what's happening, the kind of, um, you know, with our kids or, you know, in, in, in politics, um, how, how that social media echo chamber is sort of distorting things, you know, right. sort of bullying, bullying and trolling and body dysmorphia for kids kind of all off the charts. And then you see what's happening in D.C. on January the 6th and QAnon and these people who've gone down a kind of algorithmically created rabbit hole and ended right. up in a kind of pretty weird place. And um, so so what we're trying to talk about in the book is, well, how do we grapple with that? How do we, you know, hashtag tech for good? How do we continue to keep tech in a good place, you know, allowing us to work, allowing us to collaborate, allowing us to, you know, be connected with our colleagues and our friends and our families, but at the same time, not allow these kind of negative dark sides mm. of technology to, to overwhelm the good sides and ultimately screw everything up. Um, so the idea of the Federal Technology Administration is really kind of an uh, acknowledgement that if you um, study the charters of the FTC and the FCC, which are kind of the main regulatory federal um, level bodies right. that o oversee business and communications, if you look at their charters, they don't say anything about data or algorithms or any of these technologies that really kind of are controlling our lives now. Right. And we think it's time that we put in place kind of the modern infrastructure, legislative uh, regulatory infrastructure to manage the modern world. And, um, uh, you know, if you think about the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, that was created, you know, almost 100 years ago to deal with issues in regulating food and chemical, you know, and, and, and pharmacies and right. drugs as they were coming into the world. Right. And um, so we think, again, in a sort of parallel that now that technology is so important, so central to every aspect of life, we need to kind of have that, um, as I say, modern regulatory infrastructure in place. And within the FTA, the Federal Technology Administration, we're calling for this establishment of the, uh, as you said, the U.S. Data Agency which would have right. a charter to really to understand and manage and create the rules of the road, if you like, for how data is used. Because, again, most people listening to this podcast probably understand uh, the role that data is playing. Um, but the vast majority of regular citizens, kind of regular civilians, don't really understand what data means and right. how it's used and what's at stake here. Uh, and so, again, this is this notion of a USDA, U.S. data agency, is sort of inspired by the way that um, uh, modern Western societies have managed nuclear power. Uh, again, if you think about the emergence of nuclear power in the Second World War mm -hmm. and then how we sort of commercialized that and used it in non-military context, uh, in the UK, where I come from, there's a, something called the U, uh, UK Atomic Energy Authority. Right. And it has the oversight responsibility for managing nuclear energy, nuclear power. And it's sort of staffed with scientists and sort of nerdy tech people. But it's also staffed by civilians and lay people and business people and uh, politicians. And um, so, again, this idea that we've all got 
a uh, responsibility here to manage these incredibly powerful technologies that are increasingly kind of ruling our lives. Right. And it's not just something that we leave to the techie nerdy guys any longer. Of course not. Uh, because that's going to kind of take us down this route uh, that we can see we're on at the moment, where increasingly tech is being used in you know, malign ways. And as somebody who personally loves technology, worked all my life in technology, that kind of pains me and troubles me. Right. That the, the technology I love, you love, you know, a lot of people are making their livings out of seems to be uh, going a little bit off the rails. For sure. For sure. And, and, and that's why I wanted to kind of ask this follow-up question because I mean, like I, I get it, right. You know, people are using, you know, technology for, for, you know, not necessarily for uh, uh, decent purposes, or whatever. I know one of the things that bothers me and Startup Nation knows I've talked about this quite often is the the prevalent of deep fakes. Uh, yeah. You know, that deep fake technology. And it seemed like it's getting even better and better. True enough, we, we're using it to make, you know, Robert De Niro in a movie look a lot younger. But at the same time, yeah. you can easily see how it can be used for nefarious uh, purposes. But I am curious about like, you know, for those who do use tech and, and, and stuff like that for good to serve the common good and stuff like that. And you have like more regulations, regulations, I guess, I guess, where's that balance? Because, you know, you can easily have that argument where it's like, ah, oh, here it comes more government regulation that's going to stifle <laughs> innovation. So I guess yeah. I'm just curious, what do you say to critics like that? I'm guessing. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's a great point. And, um, uh, you know, it would be, a, it would be a disaster and it would be right. a shame. And it's certainly not our intention if we over course corrected. Right. And, uh, you know, went into after an era of kind of hands off laissez faire creative destruction, mm. um, of the last 25 years. If we, if we over course corrected into a very kind of bureaucratic top down federal government approach, and that's certainly not what, what, not what we're calling for. Right. Um, but again, you can draw a kind of a metaphor of kind of, you know, glory if you like between i always think about you know al, al gore invented the information superhighway right. you know <laughs> the, the, the internet and um you know think about think back to the the emergence of automobiles you know the early part of the 20th century if you if you look at a picture of a main street in you know mid-america in 19 19- 30 or a high street in in england where i originally come from right in the same period you'll see lots of cars on the road there but you won't see any stop signs or traffic lights or yield signs or road markings or um uh, uh crossing signs or anything like that that infrastructure of safety on the road isn't there yet and then if you fast forward into 1960, 1965, 1970, you begin to see those things. If you took a picture, if you looked at a picture of the same Main Street, you know, 30, 40 years later, all of that infrastructure that we now assume is going to be there to keep us safe on the road is there. And I think that's kind of the that that's the metaphor to keep in mind that we've spent the last 25 years laying the tarmacadam of the information superhighway. Mm -hmm. And what we need to do in the next 25 years, and probably sooner than that, is to put in place that infrastructure of safety so we can continue to drive down that 
that highway, drive down at 100 miles an hour, 200 miles an hour, 500 miles an hour, but not kill ourselves or anybody else or blow the whole thing up in the process. And so, again, you know, you think about that technology, you mentioned that deep fake technology, right. uh, you know, coming out of the movie industry and now being kind of um, scaled into and, and, and democratized. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's extraordinary. You look at the Tom Cruise um, deep fakes and, you know, again, as a, a science nerdy techie guy, I think that's amazing. Right. But, but um, you know, what happens, as you quite rightly say, when, um, you know, President Obama or President Biden or somebody says, you know, as Ronald Reagan famously was caught on a hot mic saying in 1980, let mm -hmm. the bombing begin in five minutes. Right. You know, what, what happens then? And and that seems funny now, but it's not going to be funny when it happens in reality. And so, again, that's just a perfect example of that we've got this incredibly powerful technology, but we need to tame it. We need to be able to manage that. And the, the federal government is going to play a role in that. There's just of absolutely course. no doubt about that. And again, I would say that the the regulatory framework that made sense in the early part of the 90s, this, this kind of hands-off approach, this um, you know, Section 230 approach, sort of made sense then when we had this little fledgling um, tree growing. Right. But now it's, the, now it's the biggest biggest oak in the forest. It is. <laughs> and the idea that we have the same approach to managing it now it's that illogical. we did then, yeah. it's kind of, it, it's illogical. Right. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't make any sense at all and i think only ideologues can argue that we need to continue to completely keep our hands off technology i mean you know tax policy around e-commerce again it, it sort of made sense 30 years ago it doesn't make sense now right right for sure no i, I definitely uh, understand that for sure. And, and one of the things that you also talk about, you know, going back to the kind of the deep fake technology, uh, you know, is the uh, banning of political advertising, <clears throat> excuse me, the banning of political advertising on social media. Cause that, I think that's one of the things where when I think of deep fake technology, you can easily have like some uh, celebrity who wouldn't necessarily endorse a certain candidate or something like that, endorse a candidate. And that person like, I never said that that's not even somebody created that, you know, yeah, but, exactly. but, but, but I can, yeah definitely you know understand the whole banning of social media i mean political ads on social media because because uh, the thing is it's like when most people are on social media they're not there for political ads or something like that for the most part right and so i think yeah. sometimes that thinking when you see a political ad can get a bit slanted so if you would just kind of talk about that a little bit if you don't mind yeah again i mean uh where i come from in the uk there's no political advertising on TV or social media or anything. Gotcha. Um, whereas here in America, the whole American political system right. um, and all, all of its idiosyncrasies is predicated on advertising, political advertising. And, and you know, it's bad enough on TV, but it's just gone absolutely off the charts uh, on social media. And it, it doesn't make any sense again. Right. And um, I, I, I think, you know, in Canada, it's very um, uh, heavily regulated. Mm -hmm. I think at a, at a stroke, it would change the dynamics in, in America and the political uh, uncivil war that's going on, as you mentioned, uh, overnight. And, and some people say, well, you can't, um, even if you wanted to do that, technologically, you couldn't do that. And I just, we just don't buy that argument. Um, right. You know, you think about the fact that there are 2.7 billion streams being um, algorithmically managed and personalized on Facebook, the technology that can do that 
can absolutely manage a situation like that. It's just where there's a will, there's a way. For sure. And at the moment, the, the, the will is not really uh, that strong amongst some people. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, Startup Mission, we're talking to Ben Pring, the co-author of Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives, and future. And once, once again, Startup Nation, if you want to get a copy of that book, we have a link there in the show notes for easy access if you listen to the replay on the podcast. Now, one of the things you talked about in this book is probably going to be extremely controversial with some of my younger listeners of the startup life. And you talk about prohibiting the use of social media for people under the age of 18. Now, I, I can admit that during this pandemic, a lot of those young people kind of got me through it with TikTok uh, you know, videos and being funny and, and stuff like that. But we've also seen uh, that generation been, you know, be uh, active in the political space you know, you know, under 18 and stuff like that. So I guess I'm curious, you know, what what's the thinking behind that one and, and why that uh, prohibition uh, for people under 18? Yeah, well, think about it, Dominic. I mean, we don't let 13 year olds drink. We don't. Or smoke <laughs> or drive or vote or join the army or or vote or um, get married. But we put the most powerful technologies ever known to humankind in the hands of a 13 year old. Fair enough. Stand, stand back. And then we're amazed that that's fair and bullying and suicide and body dysmorphia and YOLO and FOMO and all this craziness just has gone off the charts. And it, it, it's sort of, you know, at a personal level, um, you know, upsetting to me uh, again, I, you know, I've been a tech evangelist all my, all my life. And, um, you know, when my kids were young, I sort of overrode my wife's objections, you know, got them phones when they were 12, 13. So oh, I'll be fine. You know, they're, they're learning a new new way of connecting and communicating right. and, you know, a new lingua franca of the world. And um, and I and I step back and see what it's done to my own kids. And, you know, they're great kids. But but the way it's completely come to dominate their life and how addicted they are to it. And I just think it really is a bit weird and strange. And frankly, um, I think when we look back at this period, the last 10, 15 years in another generation's time, people will just be amazed that this happened, that we allowed kids to do this uh, in a kind of unsupervised way. It was there was a sort of um, a tech lunacy, I think, was unleashed. And it's not just kind of older people like me saying this. Um in fact, there's a you know one of the motivating forces for um, for writing about this and making this suggestion was was a a college application essay mm. that my own son wrote when he was applying to college, where the the um, the college asked the question: if you could recommend one thing to politicians to make the world better, what would it be? And mm -hmm. my son, completely unbidden by me, you know, not influenced by me at all, uh, simply wrote a, an essay saying ban social media mm. because, you know, it, he felt like it had ruined his childhood. It ruined his generation. Everybody was so addicted. The behavior was so crazy. The access to pornography was just, you know, unbelievable. Right. And so it's not just older people. I think there's a lot of young people who feel this as well, that there are kind of pop stars 
for young for, for young audiences, Matty Healy from 1975 as one example. People just say that this is a, a double-edged sword. There's some good aspects to it, but it's also very, very corrosive. And again, we're not trying to ban social media. We're not suggesting right. about banning social media. We're just suggesting that in the same way that kids are introduced to and taught how to use a machine like a car through through lessons through class-based education through through passing a, a test through having a license which is revocable if they kind of screw up i think we should have the same sort of approach to introducing people to this incredibly powerful technology in their hands so when they are 18 they know how to use it Fair and we don't, uh, we don't sort of bring up a generation who've been completely unmanaged, completely untaught how to use this stuff, who are now in their 20s, some in their 30s, who are continuing that sort of awful behavior of the uh, junior high <laughs> in, mm-hmm. in, the real, in the real world. And we can, again, just see the real consequences that this is having. For sure. For sure. And you know what? Now that you mention it, I, I, I actually uh, mentor uh, entrepreneurship uh, uh, mentees here in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, and I'll, uh, quite a few of them are not on social media for that very reason. Now that you think of, now that you said something, yes. I just, re- you know, cause I know one kid was getting, he was getting bullied, uh, yeah. on social media. So he completely got off and another one was just like, you know what? It's just another one just said, it's just too much. It's yeah, just well, too there's, much. There's, you know, there's all sorts of famous people, Chrissy Tignan, right. um, the tennis player, Andy Murray in the, in the UK mm-hmm. last weekend, all the, all the premier league soccer teams went off social media for the whole week, uh, weekend. And so, you know, there's lots and lots of people who are, are saying this now. And, mm-hmm. I, and, and the point that my son made, which again is sort of heartbreaking a little bit is that, it's very, very hard for an individual kid, and I applaud you know the, the folks that you're mentoring down there in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very hard for an individual kid to kind of go off on their own. Right. They feel like they feel like they're the outcast. They feel like they're the kind of, um, you know, that they're outside the in, in inside group, if you know what I mean. Right. And uh, and I think again, that's why. You know, famous people, well-known people who are beginning to go off. I think that's, um, you know, hopefully that's a sign to some of those younger people, but that it is okay to, 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 to disconnect, you know, either temporarily or, or perhaps permanently. And you don't need to live your life in this way. Because, again, I mean, anybody of a you know, certain age knows that this wasn't how the world was you know, 10, 12, 15 years ago, there was a world before social media and, um, you know, it had its problems and challenges too, but For sure. what we're seeing, what we're seeing at the moment is kind of crazy. I think the other really important thing to, to mention Dominic, you know, particularly to your audience is that, um, you know, the solution and the answer to the, these issues and challenges isn't just government, you know, regulation and oversight. It gotcha. isn't just, it isn't just, you know, individual human actions. There's a whole commercial opportunity, an innovative startup disruption-based opportunity here to bring in solutions to the to these problems. One thing I, um, you know, some people will, will have heard about is the Light Phone, mm. um, which was a Kickstarter-funded campaign, one of the best best Kickstarter campaigns ever of a literally that a Light Phone. 
uh, you know, you make phone calls on it, you can text on it, but it doesn't have any social media apps. It doesn't have any of these addictive things on it that draw us more and more down this rabbit hole. So that's a, that's an innovative, new, you know, disruptive startup-based solution to a problem. And I think, again, in the context of, you know, the free market and, the, you know, the best idea wins, I mean, that, that to me is very exciting to see people coming into the marketplace with, with new approaches to deal with, you know, a, a challenge that, you know, that we've got at the moment. For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that. I want to ask this next question, but before I do, I want to read a, 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 a quote from the book, a piece from the book really quickly before I do uh, it says, quote, asked to name a scientific formula. Most non-scientists would struggle to get beyond E equal MC squared. Everybody kind of knows that one, right? Would any of them know R is greater than G? We wonder. Yet R greater than G is the most powerful formula affecting the lives of billions of people around the world as they go about securing their daily bread and avoiding their quotient of pain, end quote. So I wanted to ask you about that. What is R greater than G and why should we know what that is? Yeah, well, that is a formula that a um, an economist called Thomas Piketty, okay. who's, a, who's a French professor uh, in Paris, came up with in a very, very important book that was published about 10 years ago called Capital, uh, which uh, the formula means simply that the rate of growth of capital is is higher than the rate of growth of the real economy. Mm. And so that's a fancy way of saying that the rich are getting richer. Right. <laughs> and and technology is playing a role in that. If you look at the you know explosion of wealth in tech in the last 10, 15 years, the fact that the biggest companies in the world are now tech companies, the richest people in the world are now tech people. Really what's happening is that wealth is consolidating and and sim sim similarly poverty uh, is consolidating. And, and this is very, very troubling. And I think if you, you know, uh, decompose a lot of the problems and challenges all around the world, um, politically, socio, uh, sociologically, right. they all come come back to this reality that there are a lot of people who increasingly feel they're being left behind. Um, uh, you know, uh, economically, they can they can, in fact, ironically, and sort of they can see through their phones on Instagram the lives of the rich and famous, and they realize that they're not living that lifestyle. Right. And and so R, R is greater than G is really just calling out in a sort of academic um, way that we need to deal do something with, uh, about that. And that's really, you know, again, the story of the last political campaign. It's the story of mm. Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren. It's the story of... Um, now Joe Biden trying to do something about that sure. uh, with the with the infrastructure spending, and this this plays out in the UK. You know Brexit um, that people may have heard about. That's a sort of manifestation of the same reality. Uh, the, the 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 riots going on in in France itself, the gilets jaunes, the yellow jackets, um, people striking because they can feel that they're just falling behind, and and the and the role of technology in that again is sort of troubling because if if all technology is is a way of making the rich richer right then you know count me out really because that's not the world 
I want to live in. It's not really the world of technology right. I want to live in. So, um, yeah, that's what it's all about. For sure. But I would ask, you know, and, and I definitely agree 100 uh, percent with that notion. But in the same vein, it is also fair to say that, you know, that that same kind of tech, you know, obviously not with the war chest that the big tech companies have of capital, uh, but that same kind of tech, you know, even at a, a grassroots level is also a way for uh, people who didn't have that access to make a, a living for themselves. For for instance, I ha- I have this this podcast or whatever. I didn't have to go through a big tech company to do that or somebody who, in Mumbai who knows how to code. Right. You know, so I mean, it's also fair to say that, isn't it right, Ben? Oh, of course. Yeah. No, again, this is the double edged sword. Right. Right. Technology. And right. why? Why? We're not uh, coming to, to bury technology. Of course, of course. Great, great <laughs> technology. Uh, because technology is completely central to economic security and right. economic growth and e- economic prosperity and economic inclusion. So, no, we spend a lot of time in Cognizant, and I spend a lot of time myself, uh, you know, putting money uh, to organizations that are trying to get the, the, the skills and the uh, the technology into the hands of more and more people, because ultimately that is the that is the real ultimate solution. Um, For sure. You know, if you if you live in a zip code full of code, then, you know, life is pretty good. But if you live in an analog zip code mm. uh, and you're not really participating in, in, in tech and this explosion of opportunity, then then, you know, putting up a wall seems like the, the best idea that you can come come up with or, right. or, or or separating yourself from the rest of the world. It seems like a good idea. But no, you're absolutely right, Dominic. Um, uh, you know, the, the, again, in, the, in a uh, uh, capitalist um, uh, context, you know, putting the means of production. Right. In more and more people's hands, which which has happened in the last few years, you're absolutely right. That is ultimately the real answer. So, um, yeah, no, we're not we're not we're not not trying to say tech is the big. Of bad course not. Of course not. We're, no, we're, we're simply saying that technology is. We can see having this impact of of compounding winners and losers. Right. Uh, right. And we can't allow that compounding to go too far. We need to spread the opportunity more broadly. And and you know, again, people listening to this, people who are in the tech startup world, um, that's terrific. That is absolutely the number one thing to do, kind of the route to survival, to thriving in the fourth industrial economy is all through digital literacy. And so, um, no, you guys are doing the right thing. For sure. For sure. Thank you uh, for sharing that. Once again, Startup Nation, we're actually wrapping up with Ben Preen, co-founder and leads the Center for the Future of a Work there at Cognizant. So if you would just really quickly just kind of talk about the work you do at Cognizant, if you don't mind, Ben. Yeah, well, Cognizant's a big technology services company, right. um, three, 300,000 people around the world. Uh, and, yeah, we work with banks and airlines and insurance companies and government departments to to help run their tech and, you know, develop their tech, uh, everything from sort of, you know, the, the data center end of the world through applications and services and business processes. Uh, and so, yeah, the group that I run, the Center for the Future of Work, is kind of a think tank. Um, which, um, yeah, we go out and talk at events and to clients and to the market at large about what we see going on with technology and how our clients and anybody can sort of take advantage of this. And again, this notion of the monster and writing about this mm-hmm. is predicated, again, on that idea of hashtag tech for good. You know, we, we see Absolutely. the power of technology for good. 
and how it creates uh, opportunity, how it makes the world better, how we can help engineer a better world and engineer modern businesses. Um, but at the same time, we don't want to run away from some of those challenges and some some of those sort of issues. Of we, course. We feel it. We feel it sort of behooves us and we have a responsibility as people who love technology um, to make sure that the tech is kind of used in the right way. For sure. For sure. And I appreciate you sharing that. And before I ask the last question, I just want to say, Ben, thank you so much for coming on uh, the Startup Life. Uh, you gave amazing value. I really appreciate it. And once again, Startup Nation, that book is Monster, a tough love letter on taming the machines that rule our jobs, lives and future. And we have a link there in the show notes if you listen to the replay on uh, the podcast. Ben, I want to ask you this and, and, and let you go here. Uh, you know, if, if you had the chance to talk to somebody, uh, you know, in, in the past, you know, who's no, no longer with this uh, and you can just pick their brain for like an hour, who, who would that person be? And what would you ask them? <laughs> what a great question. Uh, gosh, there's so many people, Dominic. I'm, as a, although I'm a futurist. Right. Right. I, I, I read a lot of history, so I'm very interested in, uh, a lot of historical figures. Let me think. Who would I most like to meet and talk to? Um, wow, that's a great question. Uh, well, while you well, think about you, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Well, no, I was going to say, um, again, betraying my British roots, people, <laughs> may, <laughs> people may know the name Captain Scott. Okay. Who was, who was a polar explorer in the... Uh, uh, early part of the 20th century. Interesting. He, di he died at the South Pole um, in uh, trying to open up and explore the, the South Pole, Antarctica. Uh, there was a Norwegian uh, gentleman called Amundsen who were, he and Scott were in a race to be the first person to get to the South Pole and Amundsen beat him and Scott died on the return journey back to uh, base. And um, if people don't know that story, it's an incredible story of a sort of adventure and um, the human spirit under incredible stress. And uh, his diaries, which he wrote all along the way, and then literally in the tent as he was dying the last uh, few days of his life, they're incredibly powerful and um, moving stories. And, 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 uh, I'd I'd like to have met him because he was a he was an a, incredible sort of character, a leader, uh, a pioneer, somebody who took on incredible risk and gave their life in you know trying to uh, achieve uh, that incredible goal. And I I think there's a lot of um, a lot of uh, to be learnt from from people like him and Amundsen and also Shackleton, who was another of these um, crazy explorers uh, who wanted to kind of go where no man had been before. For sure. You know, it's funny you mentioned that before the pandemic here in Memphis at the Pink Palace Museum, they actually had that exhibit about that that race uh, between. Did they really? the, yeah, yeah, they did. I actually that's yeah. one of the last museum uh, exhibits I kind of caught before the pandemic and stuff like that. And was reading about, you know, uh, Captain Scott and Amazon and, and how the difference in the size of, you know, uh, gear and teams as opposed yeah. to the other and stuff like that. So I'm actually somewhat familiar uh, yeah, with that story. Great. And I no, definitely no, know those journals that you're talking about. Sure. Lots to, lots to learn from. It is. Lots to, lots to learn from reading about people. Like that. And again, I think particularly in the context of a kind of entre on entrepreneurial mindset, Absolutely. Or, or entrepreneurial spirit, kind of studying those people who have, 
have really taken risk to kind of go, as I say, where other people haven't been before, whether it's in developing an app or a system or, you know, exploring the world, uh, explore, exploring virtual reality, the kind of next paradigm. I think, again, applying those lessons, just learning the, the temperaments of those people, how they sure. dealt with stress, stress, how they dealt with adversity, how they bounced back. Um, no, they're, they're super interesting books to read all about that. And I think you can draw you know, pretty straight lines between that world that seems a long time ago and, and, and 2021 and beyond. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you uh, for sharing that. And that's going to wrap up this session, which I really hate because I really enjoyed talking to you. Uh, ben, I can talk to you longer, but I know you have a meeting to get to. So, <laughs> But that's going to wrap up this session of The Start of Life. I want to once again thank Ben Preen, uh, uh, co-author of Monster, A Tough Love Letter, on Tame the Machines That Rule Our Jobs, Lives, and Future. Thank you so much, Ben. Great to you, Dominic. No worries. And as always, Startup Nation, if you have an idea, be about that life, the startup life. If you want to let us know what you think about the show, have an idea for a show topic, or would like to advertise on a show, send us a message. Our contact information is there in the show notes, or feel free to reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Go ahead and follow us while you're at it. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, and be sure to hit us with that five-star rating. We would really appreciate that. Be sure to check out the show's website and its startup blog, where either I or some of the world's best business minds share content that will give you the edge you need in your journey, whether that's the path of entrepreneurship or climbing the corporate ladder. Subscribe to our Patreon to listen to ad-free episodes, exclusive content, and digital products that we are beginning to offer. And if you want to be part of the conversation, join the Startup Life podcast on Clubhouse to have the ability to talk directly to some of our guests. And as always, Startup Nation, if you have an idea, be about that life, the Startup Life.